Let's, let's go to the Lord and pray together this morning. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we come to worship you, we come to adore you, and may we, even as we have been, may we lift up our eyes to you. Even now, in the midst of everything going on in the world and everything going on around us, perhaps things going on in our own lives, we ask, Father, that you would be with us to lift up our eyes right now upon you and to look to you, Father. For you are the one who has made us and you have made all things. And we, even every moment by moment, You are giving us life every breath by breath. You are the one who is giving it and sustaining us. And we see that indeed your mercies are persistent, even tasted and felt every hour. And so we come before you, O Lord. Help us to look away from all that is going on around us to you. And help us right now as we turn to your word, that you help us to fix our eyes upon you, upon your son, Jesus Christ, and upon your word. May you be with me, that I may faithfully preach your word and herald it as I ought. And may you give grace to all who are listening and watching. May you work in their hearts and in their lives for your glory and conforming them ever to your Son. And so we thank you and we pray your name be lifted high right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, as you well know, was Easter Sunday. And last week, Easter Sunday, we uh, had the joy of glorying in the gracious and glorious gospel of our resurrected Savior. Well, this morning, we return to the Gospel of John to, uh, even like Dennis said a moment ago, a rather uh, favorite verse of many, and most certainly a well-known passage of the Bible, often quoted, and a beloved passage that so often has been used as a powerful summation of the Gospel. And it is certainly one of the most well-known passages of the Bible. Um, I don't know if it's the most well-known, but it is certainly among the top. And so we turn now to this distinguished verse, as well as to everything else that surrounds it, to the context. And it's my hope and prayer that as we come to this famous verse, you may not fail to take it in. And what I mean by that is, regardless of how you know, sad it may be or how much we may lament it, the truth is, is that over time, we become acquainted and perhaps over-acquainted with truths and glories that really should just leave us amazed and leave us in wonder. Um, even breathless, things that should cause us to fall to our knees in wonder. And so often as we come to familiar passages, even as you, know, you read them or hear them in church, uh, or you read them in your own private devotional time, it's easy just to kind of breeze past them without taking in what they really are saying. And so may that not be us this morning. Let's come to this passage And take it in. Um, We have heard perhaps many sermons on this passage alone, which is right. But don't fail to bow your heart and your knees as you hear it, remembering and, and being mindful of what we're seeing here. And so may you, may we, may you and us, may we not cease to wonder at what these verses disclose to us this morning. May you fully take in this verse and behold the wondrous and lavish love of God 
in sending his son into a God-hating world. And so if you would, please take your copy of God's word, and we will turn to John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. And so uh, we'll have the words there on the screen, I believe, as well. So may God bless his inspired and grace-given word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. These verses, they come on the coattails of the previous verses. So a few weeks ago, I preached through those verses, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And what we find there is this conversation, this dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus. And in these last two verses of chapter 3, verses uh, 14 and 15, so not at the end of the the whole of chapter, but verses 14 and 15, at the end of this dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus, uh, Jesus, he describes here the events of Numbers 21, where a fiery serpent came among the grumbling people of Israel, and bit them. And so Moses, following God's directions, he makes and sets up a fiery serpent that upon looking at it, the repentant, bitten Israelites would be healed. Thus, Jesus, he tells Nicodemus here then, we'll read these last verses uh, here of The dialogue, verse 14 and 15. Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And so those verses right there, they lead us then directly into our verses this morning. And you can see that. And you can see it rather easily with that word for. So giving something of an explanation and a reflection upon verses 14 and 15. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So you see the connection there. And how these verses here further expound upon what Jesus Said, And so you see this uh, serpent that has been lifted up, and so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him has eternal life. And so, for God so loved the world. And so it proceeds right into these verses here uh, that we have this morning. And maybe you haven't ever seen or even thought of that connection, because in our Bibles, there are verses, there are chapters, uh, and even there are titles over our Uh, different paragraphs, so you may not have connected that, you know, these actually are meant to flow one into the other, and so hopefully you see that now, such that now we see here, and we behold what God has done, and then directly are led to consider the immeasurable and incredible love of God. So let's take each of those in turn, 
so immeasurable and incredible love of God. So first then, let's look at how His love is immeasurable. There is no love like God's love. God's love is infinite. And His love is not lacking in anything. Contrary to perhaps, you know, some things I have heard, you know, growing up or even uh, not that long ago, how uh, some have conveyed God's love, uh, saying, you know, that God needs us. God was perhaps lonely even. And out of his loneliness, he, he made us so, you know, he wouldn't be so lonely anymore. But that's, that's not the way that we should understand God's love. In fact, that is far and it is distant from the reality of what and God's love really is. And so, here, contrary to how some have conveyed God's love prior to creation, prior to us, he was not lonely and yearning for humans to complete his love. God has never been lonely. And I mean that, never. (laughs) To say so would mean that God was lacking in something which would contradict his perfections and his perfect character and his unchanging character. And so let's, let's say it again then. God lacks nothing. God is and has always been perfectly and entirely and fully satisfied in Himself. And He has been fully and completely and utterly satisfied in Himself within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this doesn't make our understanding of God's love here less. It doesn't make us think less of what's going on here in our passage and thinking, you know, well, He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anyone. But it actually, in saying all that, magnifies His love all the more. Here particularly then, we see the immeasurability of God's love and His love for His Son. This is God's only Son He gave. God's love for His Son is beyond anything that we can imagine. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And then in Jesus' high priestly prayer, in John 17, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God's love and delight in His Son is immeasurable, incomparable. And that, knowing that, seeing that, realizing that, letting it sink in, makes this passage all the more astonishing. This very Son, the Father loves, in whom, this one in whom He is well pleased, is the one that the Father gives now let's, let's consider this for a moment from our perspective. So from our finite, kind of, this finite, creaturely perspective. So every parent, you know, me included, you know, we, we can attest to just how great our love is for our children. And I'll remember, you know, the births of our children, you know, we have four children and and every every one you know just heart exploding with delight and gladness and love for our children and and even as they they err and, and they make mistakes and and I I've, I've sat down with them I've told them you know listen you know 
I love you and, and I am disciplining you right now, but just know that that my love for you will it doesn't change. It's going to be there no matter what, son or daughter. And so we as parents, we get just how deep our love can be for our children. Now, in light of that, and, and you understand that, let's suppose for a moment that such a thing was asked of us. Consider that if you were called upon and you were told that you, if you offer up your child that all this with COVID-19 and everything else would end, how would you respond? I mean, thousands upon thousands of lives would be saved everywhere the crisis would come to an end. COVID-19 would be over. What would you do? But if we're going to follow through with what we see here, that's not all we can say. It would cost you the life of your child. But this would be a costly sacrifice to the very end they would take your child they would beat your child they would insult your child and they would see him as an enemy by all the whole world would see him as an enemy now adding even that layer even before the other even just the first layer you would have Perhaps said no, but now adding this as well, now what would you do? Yet here, what did God do? He gave His only Son. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? But there's more. God's love is immeasurable also because this was not just set forth as a hypothetical scenario, but God acted. He did something about it. God, He did not simply say, I love you. I love you, world. And I will tell you I love you. But God acted. He did something about it. Now how do you know if someone really loves you? You know, sure they, they say it, but is that all? I mean, is that all we kind of think of when we think of love? Oh man, this person said they love me. Love me. They, they mean it. You know, I don't need anything else. They said it. Well, I think we know a bit better that That's not the whole story there either. What if someone told you that they love you again and again and yet they treated you like junk? I mean, what is that telling you? I mean, the words from their mouth are not reflecting what really is happening. I mean, do they really love you? No, I don't think so. What's lacking then? Well, a self-giving demonstration of their love. Well, God, He did not simply say, I love you. God did something about it. God acted. The Net Bible helps us see this emphasis here in these words. It translates this verse here very helpfully. It says, For this is the way God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. So consider God's immeasurable love and how immeasurable it is. He did act. And He did it for us. But second. His love is also incredible. God knew 
what we would do to his son. But he sent him anyway. He did it anyway. He did it despite our rebellion. It wasn't wasn't that he sent his son into a world that was mildly receptive to him. He sent his son into a world of rebels. A world of God-haters. These were not... He he was not being sent into a world that would come and welcome him with gladness. We, we, we We do and we are people who hate God. No one was seeking him, nor do they seek him. Remember Jesus' words to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So outside of God's initiative and God acting, we would never have come. And so he also did it. So he did it despite our rebellion, but he also did it despite our being undeserving. Even our best deeds and most sacrificial of acts have stamped over them, not by faith. Not out of love for God. Daily, we breathe in the air that He gives, we eat the food that He provides, and we benefit from His good gifts. Yet over all of that is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So if you heard my other statement saying that he came into a world of God-haters, no one was seeking after him, that is why. Because God himself, he tells us, no one was seeking after me. Even so, he gave his only son. He gave his son that any who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. But what is this word here? What does this word perish mean? Perish, it's not talking about being extinguished, annihilated. It's not either talking about people going to hell and locking it from the inside. And perhaps you've, you have that perspective or you've heard that taught and I think people are there because they are that rebellious against God and they refuse Him totally and completely. But that's, that's not the whole story here. This is a parish that is contrary to eternal life. It's express, it's eternal, it's conscious, And it's punishment from God himself. That's what is meant here by perish. Never ending. Never stopping. Always bearing God's wrath upon yourself. Because of refusing God's immeasurable and incredible love. And sending a son to save you and me. But what is extended to you here is life. We're not on that side of it yet. You're not in eternity yet. You are. There are some there now. And, but you are not. You are listening. You are watching this. You are here. So in view of such immeasurable and incredible love, whoever, come. This offer is extended to you, the rebel, the undeserving, the lost, that you might not perish, but have eternal life. As one preacher heralded, the only ones who will be saved are those in the category of whoever believes. And those are the only ones who will be saved. Whoever believes. So if you will not believe, 
you will not be granted eternal life, but eternal hell. And so consider the immeasurable and incredible love of God that we see here in the giving of His Son for you, that you today may be made right with God. And so, that's the first kind of consideration and thing we should be considering as we come to these verses. There are four total here, and the second is consider the merciful mission of our Savior. We see His mission expressly here in verse 17. So He did not come bearing the sword, but He, come, he came to save sinners. And that was His mission. That is a merciful mission. And so right now, what, what the days and the hours and the moments, and just, just take it in, so the air you're breathing right now, the life you have, the heart that's beating, and everything else, the people around you even as well, they are drinking in and taking part in days of mercy. Moment by moment. Hours and moments of mercy. So consider this. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. That would have been right. But that's not why He sent His Son. He came to save. And you are living in days of mercy. It's hard to think of it. And perhaps you may not want to even go here and thinking of it this way. But that, that's, that's not really a view that comes from the Word. It comes from the world. To say, I'm not going to see what God is doing in the world and perhaps how He's trying to call me to Himself. Repent even. To look to Him. To do away with sin. If you're a believer sitting there giving your life over to sin and darkness right now. But just, just see that right now, the days we're living in, and even COVID-19, may indeed be a dose of mercy. And I would even say it is. I mean, you have said, and many others have said, throughout America, embracing the American dream of embracing their couch cushions and laying down and watching television And saying to themselves, well, my life is just fine. I have my job. I have my Netflix. I have my Amazon Prime. And I define meaning even for myself. All is well. But then, enter COVID-19. Now the illusion of permanence and invincibility has been confounded. The smoke and mirrors that we have surrounded ourselves with, they have been, if anything, and hopefully shaken. God's merciful, truth-filled call comes through all that, through this fog and through the lies, through the blindness of our eyes as well, from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it declares, here is life. It is not in what you think it is. It's not in you defining meaning for yourself. It's not in this world. It's not in America. It's not anywhere in this world. It is only in my Son. Hope is here. Mercy is here for you. And that is a mercy to pierce through the lies. Perhaps that you have been living in and even convincing yourself of day after day, even as you know that there's got to be more than this. And God, He says, these are the days of mercy. Whosoever, come, come. And so realize this is the day of salvation. Brothers and sisters, who know Christ and are listening, this is the day of salvation. The mission of the Son to save the world is now our commission 
to go and tell the world. This is the day, brothers and sisters who know the Lord, hear this. These are days of mercy. Remember, the air we are breathing and all of the people around us that are breathing, they're breathing in this air of mercy. And so, your call is don't waste these days of mercy. Who can you call this week? I mean, who do you need to have a conversation with? What do you need to do? What do you need to do away with, even? How do you need to give of yourself for the sake of the Gospel, recognizing that everything in this world, ultimately and finally, is meant to be lived to the glory of God? If that is true, how are you orienting your life that direction in days of mercy? How are you giving of yourself instead of saying, I want only more of myself. And I want my way rather than even as we see with God, He did not just simply say, I am satisfied in myself fully and completely and I will have nothing to do with them. He gave of Himself costly, sacrificially. Is that, is that how you live? So that's the second consideration. Third consideration. Consider the very real judgment of God. So at this point, you might say to yourself, hey, but wait a minute. You just said that these are days of mercy. Why are you going going to God's judgment? Well, yes, they are. But disbelief, even now, bears implications for the future. While the one who believes is not condemned, even now, praise God. But the one who does not believe is condemned, even now. And so the great call before us all is believe. Yet perhaps you hear this and you're saying to yourself, no, no, I'm not going to believe that. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You have heard all this and you hear, behold, God's immeasurable, incredible love. And you say, eh, I don't care. Well, right now, God's verdict over you is condemned. Guilty. Right now, the very real judgment of God looms over you like a storm cloud. And you may say to this, well, I don't believe that. Well, the verdict, it still stands. You may argue your case and saying, well, these are the reasons why I'm not going to believe because of this and this and this. The verdict still stands. You may give your evidences for why you think that this and that is wrong, how you are an atheist of conviction and you don't believe in God for these reasons, or perhaps you think to yourself and believe, you know, I'm a rather good person, so I think I'm fine the way I am. I don't need to believe this either. With well, the verdict still stands. Your unbelief testifies against you now. And it will also testify against you then as well. To God's love you say, no. To his pierced hands and his outstretched arms to you, you say, no. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. 
It may be that to all this, you say, this is, this is not fair. That's not fair. How can you say that? Yet, friend, don't forget what territory we've already covered here. See the offer that has been set before you and is it before you right now. While God would be just in condemning all of us, He did not do that. He did what was most costly to Himself to save you. Prior to His conversion, the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he tells of his mother's prayer for him so they would daily have these times of family worship, of reading scripture and prayer. And so this is what Charles Spurgeon writes of his mother. It was the custom on Sunday evenings while we were yet little children for her to stay at home with us. And then we sat around the table and read verse by verse and she explained the scripture to us. And after that was done, then came the time of pleading. There was a little piece of Alan's alarm or of Baxter's call to the unconverted. So that's essentially crying out, come to faith in Christ. This was read to him and this was read with pointed observations made to each of us as we sat around the table and the question was asked how long it would be before we would think about our state How long before we would seek the Lord? And then came a mother's prayer and some of the words of a mother's prayer that we shall never forget even while our hair is gray or when our hair is gray. I remember on one occasion her praying thus, Now Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. And that thought of a mother's bearing swift witness against me pierced my conscience and stirred my heart. Well, no that though I may not know you by name, I pray that you would come and you would watch or listen to this this morning, believer or unbeliever. We all need to test ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. Many will say they knew me, And Jesus will say to many, depart from me, I never knew you. There's a reason that we in America are, and the gospel has become, you know, just a sideshow to so many, to churches. It's not because there are many who are just saying, you know, I am following Jesus Christ, but they are putting on a a mask, a show. So, what is it with you? And so, friends, come, and you must come to terms with the real and just judgment of God. Prior to the very real judgment that is surely coming, see that God, right now, He sets before you life and hope and salvation. That's the third consideration. Fourth, so for these final verses here, verses 19 through 21, consider the good and offensive light. Here we are given a very stark contrast between the light and the darkness. And so we'll do kind of similar to what we did on the first point, So looking separately at both of these, the good and offensive light. So first, we see the light is good. In our natural world, you know, we understand rather easily the benefit of light, right? 
I mean, practically and plainly, we know that light helps us. I mean, if all the lights were out in here right now, and let's say it was even night right now, it would be helpful to have lights on so you could see me. I mean, we, we get that. It's, it's pretty obvious. So light helps us see our world for what it is. You know, I remember, and I, I really enjoy going camping, you know, as a family uh, with Megan and I guess it was just Isaiah and Elizabeth, I think, um, but with our in-laws as well, and we would go camping. And, of course, at night, um, what was it like? It was dark. And so what if I said to myself, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out into the forest at night, no flashlight or anything. I mean, do you think that would be helpful? <laughs> I mean, for one, I would, I would probably very quickly trip over something, fall on a rock, and maybe there's a, a, a drop-off even, and you would never see me again. And so to see it very naturally, a flashlight would be very helpful. <laughs> a light would have been appropriate to distinguish what's there and what's around you. And so that's, that's kind of a basic observation that we can make, that light helps us see it's good. But more than this, we may see the light referring to Christ is good. And this is how this imagery plays one onto the other here, seeing the light of Christ, His coming, He is good. He comes and He reveals God. He comes to lead you to what is good. And so He comes, He reveals God, He reveals God's holiness, He reveals and exposes who we are as well, though. And that is good, too. But this is where we see also that light is offensive. Now, again, practically, consider what it's like when the lights are off in your room. So, like, say you're at home, you're in bed, all the lights are off, you've laid down and gotten yourself you know, all nice and snug and in the darkness, so it's, you know, it's dark. I like my room dark as it can be because it helps me sleep very quickly, and so all the lights are off, pitch black, even better. And then, let's say, right in the midst of all that, I'm, I'm ready to go to sleep. This is great. Completely comforted where I am. And then, all of a sudden, lights get turned on. What, what happens, right? I mean, we, we grimace at it. We, we squint and we even, we even shrink back and we're offended by this intrusion of light in the midst of our darkness. Well, this is what it is like with Christ in the world. It offends people who live in the darkness. So if you've been hearing everything I've been saying, you're thinking, man, This is so offensive, what he is saying. Well, there's a reason for that. Light is offensive, but not because it's not good, but because we're not good. It offends us, and it does that in two ways. First, it's offensive because people love their sin. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So darkness allows us to remain where we are. It allows us to remain unexposed. That means that we can love our sin without interruption. No one's shedding light on what we've done. Which leads to another reason the light is offensive. It's offensive because people want to remain hidden. The light exposes our evil works. I mean, just remember the the response of Adam and Eve in the garden. What were they doing? The shame, the guilt, the wrong that they had done. And they went and did what? They went and hid themselves. 
And this is why we get so protective over our sin. We hide it. We even post a do not disturb sign over it. And one of the great, greatest offenses is to have our sin exposed. I mean, an animal is dangerous when it is wounded. And a sinner is most offended when they are exposed by the light of Christ. And with it out in the light, what do we do? I mean, we even see this everywhere in our world right now. We fight and we hit and we push others away. How dare you say I'm wrong or what I'm doing is wrong? You can't judge me. I mean, how many times, I mean, whether you're you're Christian or not, how many times have you heard that? I mean, the more ingrained our sin is, the more that we fight to keep it and protect it. You will not take this treasure from me. It is mine. And so right now, I mean, that is our relativistic, me-centered, and create-my-own-meaning-and-identity culture. Do not do anything that would offend me whatsoever. That is just an echo of light and its goodness exposing things that are wrong. And we're saying, no, I want my sin more than what you have to say. And so people, they have built fortresses around their sin, and that is not new. That is why, that is what we've always done. But, ironically, it is the exposure to the light, even the wholesale coming to the light that brings us life and freedom. Remember, the light is good. It is only coming to the light that we may live and be free. And the more we are conformed to the light, that we have life and freedom. And so, you must come fully into the light. So if you are here and you don't know Christ, the call for you is to come fully to the light. It will be challenging. It will expose you. But Jesus is saying, come to me to Christ and believe. And this is not just a call for those who don't know the Lord. This is a call for believers as well. You must bring your sin out into the light of Christ and repent. Go and sin no more is your exhortation. However ingrained or deep that sin is in your life, and it may be. It could be that you're married and you and your spouse have even joined in a sin and it is deep in your marriage. Yet the Word of God comes and exposes it and says, No, child. You need to come to the light and expose that sin and do away with it. It must die and you must die to it. The light overcomes the darkness. And we, those who know Christ, are to be typified by the light. So we are to be typified by doing what is true, of being exposed because we belong to Christ. There is even a sense about us, there should be, and we should be aiming in this way, of I want to be in the Word, and I know it's going to expose me and show my sin in my life, but I want to go there. I want to be more like Christ. So please, Lord, I'm reading your word. Expose anything in me that needs to change. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, is what this says. And so when we come to faith in Christ, we admit it and we go on admitting that we are sinners. And so the works we do are not done as we are those who know the Lord. We don't say, hey, look, Look at these great things I've done. But we come with a banner that says, carried out in God. And so, this morning, before us, we have looked at four considerations 
that we need to think upon and let them seep in because otherwise it's just going to breeze by you. You're going to be tempted to hear the word and go away and not be a doer of the word. But be left breathless. Fall to your knees and wonder. Consider the immeasurable and incredible love of God. Consider the merciful mission of the Son. Consider the very real judgment of God. And consider the good and offensive light. And may we then come fully to the light to Him and be exposed, trusting Him who amazingly, graciously, and thankfully gave Himself for us. Let's pray together. Father, we come and I ask, Father, we ask that, Lord, that even now in as we've heard the words from John 3, there may be some that have heard this and they need to come to the light and believe and trust in Jesus Christ, repenting and turning away from sin and self and turning to Christ. And so even now we pray, and I pray that you would work in their hearts and lead them to your Son. And may you Help them even now to respond. And Father, for, uh, for believers, we just ask that you would help us to worship, to indeed be left breathless, to be amazed at your incredible, glorious love, to come and be mindful that these are days of mercy and we need not waste them. So help us not waste them, Father. And Father, we pray that even us, those who profess profess faith in Christ, that we would also recognize there is a very real judgment of God coming. And we need to examine ourselves as well. And then, Father, we see, and may we see the light as good and exposes us. So help us, Lord. Help your children to see that following Christ is good. Growing and being conformed to Him is good. And so may we, may you work in us, change us, and conform us to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.